Just give us one hour, and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen is a fresh talk radio approach promoting happiness from the inside out. Happiness is a choice, and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. Each week, Lisa shines her light on well-being and global human flourishing by presenting a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who have devoted their lives to creating a better world in which to live. As a filmmaker, positive psychology coach, author, professor, and change agent specializing in the field of happiness, Lisa Cybers Kamen is widely recognized as an expert in the field. On the show, she also focuses on military families and service personnel returning with PTSD, traumatic brain injury, and other post-deployment civilian life reintegration issues. So, let's spend some time getting to the heart of the matter on Harvesting Happiness on toginet.com. And now, here's your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, where we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart. And this show is most definitely all about the heart. Connect with us. We love hearing from our listeners. Follow me on Twitter at Lisa Kamen or HH Talk Radio or tweet at us with the hashtag Harvesting Happiness. Alrighty then, let's get to it. Oftentimes we explore subjects on this show um, that are inversely joyful. And today happens to be one of those days. We're talking about disaster relief, crisis management, and the everyday heroes that we find in our paths as we go about our days. Suzanne Bernier is an award-winning and internationally recognized disaster management consultant. She's also an instructor, a speaker who has helped governments, communities, and companies plan and respond to disaster for more than 20 years. She was recently awarded the prestigious Global Innovation and Excellence Award in excellence, particularly in uh, emergency management within her, her native country, which is Canada. She was also awarded the 2014 International Business Excellence Award in Crisis Communication. Suzanne, welcome. Thank you, Lisa. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I am, I'm eager to speak with you because you've written a book entitled Disaster Heroes that was recently released, which tells the stories of ordinary people, men, women, and children who have done extraordinary things to help respond, recover, and rebuild following some of the world's most significant disasters. Tell us a little bit about the book. Sure. Um, I was first inspired to write the book. Um, before I got into the field of disaster management, I just want to step back for a second. I used to be a journalist myself. And I know all too well 
the media always have to focus on, of course, what's happening, the events of the time. Often, at the beginning of a disaster, we focus on, of course, the bad images. We see the news. A lot of things, you know, we see death, destruction, devastation, which, of course, does happen during disasters across the globe. But what I wanted to focus on was all of the, for every one negative story that we see in the news about any kind of a disaster across the world, there are thousands of hidden stories that we don't get to hear about, some great things that great people are doing all over the world to help rebuild communities, to help save lives after disasters. And those are the kinds of stories that we don't get to hear very often in the media. And I wanted to really try to show those behind-the-scenes types of heroes and groups and organizations that all come together whenever we see a disaster. Um, From my own perspective, What really hit me and struck me was after I went for my first volunteer rebuilding effort after Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. Um, There was a group group of us that were assigned with rebuilding a, a fire hall there. And just what I saw, the people that I met, the stories that I heard, and all of the great things that were happening to help rebuild New Orleans that I'd not really even been aware of after it being, you know, several months after the initial disaster. Um, you didn't really hear much about it in the news anymore. I had no idea all of the great, amazing things and people that were coming together to help rebuild that great city. Um, and once I did start hearing and meeting those people on the ground after Katrina, that's what really inspired me to say, you know, there are helpers and heroes everywhere after each disaster. I want to seek these people out and share their stories to remind people that whenever you do see an image of uh, a disaster in the news, remember there there are thousands of great things that are happening behind the scenes um, from everybody involved, the first responders, um, the your your police, fire, EMS, your military, all of these people that, of course, do heroic things every day. There are also so many hidden heroes behind the scenes that do so many great things, and those are what I touch on in the book, these hidden heroes, these everyday people that you would never really think about or associate as a hero, um, but the kinds of things that they've done to help rebuild communities and save lives are just incredible, and I just really thought the whole world needs to hear about these people and their stories. I agree. You know, um, everyday heroes, they are out amongst us. We are those people. We are people who reach out and help and serve others in their time of need. And many of the heroes out there are very, very quiet. Tell us a little bit about Ronnie Goldman, speaking of Louisiana. I love talking about Ronnie. Ronnie happens to be the um, the inspiration for the book in the first place. So Ronnie was a gentleman that I met during my first rebuilding effort in New Orleans. He's a New Orleanian, comes from New Orleans, and this was um, shortly after 9-11. Ronnie Goldman is sitting in his kitchen making coleslaw with his wife a few days after 9-11 happened. They're watching an image of President Bush address the nation at Ground Zero. And when the camera pans out, Ronnie notices what the president is standing on when he was delivering his address. And he noticed he was standing on the shell of a burned-out fire truck. And right away, Ronnie just thought, after seeing that image, he realized how many not only people, first responders, everyday people who were affected by that devastation that day, but also he had remembered hearing that about almost 100 service vehicles were lost by the New York City Fire Department that day in responding to those events. So Ronnie, after seeing that image, thought, New York is in deep trouble. We have to do something to try to help, and we're going to rebuild 
the New York City Fire Department. And just by saying that, um, his wife said, well, what are you going to do about it? Do something about it. So Ronnie, as, as his wife said, get off your butt and do something about it. And Ronnie did. Ronnie ended up just through the next day making a call to a local radio station to let them know his idea of him wanting to help rebuild the New York City Fire Department through the state of um, Louisiana and the residents of Louisiana um, to try to develop some kind of large fundraising campaign, a statewide fundraising campaign, to give back to New York what they had lost um, after 9-11 as far as service vehicles go. So just from that one idea, Ronnie was able to raise over $1 million dollars from one of the poorest states in the Union to give to one of the richest after um, the 9-11 terror attacks. And the story doesn't end there. That's when I, that in itself, when I heard that story, when I was talking to Ronnie, when I met him, who was volunteering, by the way, after Katrina, um, because, of course, heroes don't just stop with one disaster. I mean, that's just who they are. And so you'll keep meeting them at these rebuilding efforts wherever you go. Um, so that's where I had the good fortune of meeting him, and I thought the story ended there. It didn't. Of course, Ronnie proceeds to tell me that after he raised enough money to deliver what was called the Spirit of Louisiana, the first fire truck um, that was built and delivered on behalf of the residents of, of Louisiana to New York City. Um, little did they know that four years later, the Spirit would be coming right back to New Orleans, where it was conceived, um, to be able to help respond and rebuild after Hurricane Katrina. That Man, is uh, uh, an incredible story. And I want to just ahead. mention some of these other uh, crises that you've been involved with. The 1998 ice storm of the century in eastern Canada, 2003, the northeast blackout, Hurricane Katrina, as we just mentioned, Hurricane Sandy, the H1N1 pandemic, as well as floods, fires, severe storms, and reputational crises, which I think is very interesting. Yes. Um, so I have had the, well, some would say the misfortune, some would say the good fortune, depending on the event uh, and the crisis, but I've, I've had the opportunity to, to work with communities who've been dealing with those events and similar ones across the world. Um, and what I found was that in every single event, again, we only get to see a small percentage of the coverage on the news. Um, we don't get to see what really happens behind the scenes in every single one of these. And I'd say that regardless of what it is that causes the disaster, whether it's a human-caused um, event or it's a man, uh, sorry, natural-caused event, regardless of what happens, the same thing happens every single time. We see communities, organizations, governments all getting together to help rebuild. And these are the things, again, that we don't see behind the scenes, but they happen every time. We see ordinary citizens, men, women, children of all ages from all backgrounds come together and have these creative ideas that they share with the communities that are helping to rebuild. And that in itself is helping to add to the communities, to the survivors um, that have gone through this disaster. We see survivors themselves stepping up, people who've lost everything. Um, let's say on, my, on, on site after Hurricane Sandy when I was helping to rebuild one specific area on Staten Island that was very, very um, hard hit after Hurricane Sandy, I met a survivor himself who had lost everything, but his family was safe, and he said that's all that mattered to him. Yet he was on the ground 15 to 16 hours a day on his feet, 
feeding that community that had lost everything because he felt for himself and for his community he needed to be there. He had lost everything, but again, his safety, his family's safety were first and foremost. They were safe. He felt that he had to give back somehow. And you should have seen the way the community was reacting, just knowing, standing in line when they were waiting for their their meals, their hot meals, um, to be able to recognize someone from their own neighborhood that they could talk to, share their experiences with, and really open up with. And you could see that there was, this was making such a helpful, um, this was helping them so much in releasing everything that they had gone through and sharing with somebody that they knew and they felt familiar with what was happening to them and sharing with someone that had gone through the same thing. Again, these are the systems. Suzanne, we're going to need to go to a break. And when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation. But before we step out for that, that, that pause, I want to just introduce the idea of um, how we build resilience and how we bounce back when bad things do happen to us. Because this really is a cornerstone to creating and maintaining positive emotion. And we'll come back to that conversation when we go to the break. But it really is an important element. You mentioned this gentleman who had experienced um, physical losses, his family was fine, and yet he stepped back in to serve. And we know from a positive psychology model that service, being of service, being of use to others is one of the cornerstones for generating positive emotion. To learn more about Suzanne Bernier, please visit SuzanneBernier.com. On Facebook, the page is Disaster Heroes. And on Twitter, the handle is at Disaster Heroes. And the book name, of course, is Disaster Heroes. And you can find it wherever books are sold. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. Happiness is an inside job. Wear the message on t-shirts, baseball caps, sterling silver designer jewelry, and more. Please visit our online boutique at www.harvestinghappiness.com. Are you or do you know a returning U.S. military man or woman in need of restoring joy in their lives? Did you know that our nonprofit, Harvesting Happiness for Heroes, offers stigma-free combat trauma and post-deployment reintegration programming? Check us out at www.hh4heroes.org. That's HH, the number four, and heroes.org. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Lisa Cypress came and has made her first ebook, Got Happiness Now? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life. Available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.harvestinghappinesstalkradio.com. Love is in the air, in the whisper of the tree. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. We are speaking with Suzanne Bernier. She is an award-winning and internationally recognized disaster management consultant. And we're talking about everyday heroes that walk amongst us, everyday heroes that do uh, wonderful acts of service for others, 
uh, to help when there is a disaster, no matter what size. It can be large or small. And my guest today has been involved with countless disasters around the world and recently wrote a book entitled Disaster Heroes that tells the story of ordinary people who have done extraordinary things to help respond, recover, and rebuild some of our most significant disasters. So, Suzanne, we were talking prior to the break about um, people within the community who oftentimes roll up their own sleeves and go back to serve in the community once they establish that their own families are safe and sound they just dive right in and what that element of heroism is that that sparks them and inspires others yes thanks lisa um yeah what i've seen with all of the heroes that i've had the amazing for it's a good fortune to be able to sit down and meet and interview is that really Yes, there are some things that I would say constitute a hero, um, things like perseverance, selflessness, the, the normal things that you would think to describe a hero. But also, more than anything, what I recognized was that we all have it in each of us to be a hero. These people are not what you would call superheroes that had specific skills or things that they, um, that they had to offer that other people didn't. These were just, again, ordinary people, just with ordinary thoughts where they saw something and felt that, you know, either they were implicated themselves and realized, okay, they were safe, but they had to give back to their community somehow or wanted to help rebuild, or others who just came from completely different, unaffected areas to help complete strangers rebuild. In the end, I think everybody that I met um, and that I continue to meet who help respond and rebuild after disasters um, have, again, one thing in common with everybody else is we're all in this together and everybody sort of looks at every disaster as there are no borders when it comes to disasters. There are no, you know, I work for this agency, you work for that agency, I don't do this. We all come together and we figure it out. Um, one of the things that our community is really great at, I believe, is being able to now take the lessons learned from these disasters and sharing them across the world with other communities to help them be better the next time they respond to disasters. And that's something that I think is really important that people recognize, too, is when you see all of the coverage of the disasters, there's a whole group, a whole community of people that all we do is ensure that after we analyze and respond to these disasters, we then look at the lessons learned and share the best practices with everybody else around the world to make sure that we all can be better and more safe uh, and be quicker in responding and saving lives the next time around. And you talk about our everyday heroes and, and, and perhaps the way that we can teach our children because the, the, there is a profound message when bad things happen that how we can teach our children about bouncing back, about resiliency, about service, about the, the possibility for a better and brighter tomorrow, even in the face of adversity and crisis. That's right. And I'm going, to, um, I'm going to mention a quote that I'd heard a while ago from Mr. Rogers, um, um, the ultimate father figure, I think, in America. Um, so when, Mr. Rogers, when he was a boy, he was interviewed once, and he said when he was a boy and he would see scary things in the news, his mother would say to him, look for the helpers. You'll always find people who are helping. And he said that would give him um, some hope. And whenever he would then focus on 
disasters, he would focus on the helpers. And that's a message that I think is key, that we, I would love to see parents, grandparents, and just ourselves as, as humans, the next time we look at the news coverage of a disaster, yes, you're going to see the negative images. Unfortunately, those things will continue to happen. We can't prevent every disaster from happening. But what we do have control over is how we perceive those disasters and how we view them. In every single devastating image that we'll see in the news, you will see in the periphery the firefighter who is putting out a fire, the police officer who's carrying someone away to safety, the everyday citizen who's stopping traffic um, and directing traffic after the power outage has hit New York City after the terror attack. There are so many examples of helpers and heroes that if we choose to look for them, we will see them. And that's what I would encourage people to do with their children. When you're watching the next image on the news or on the Internet of something bad happening, get your children to play a game and have them point out the helpers and the heroes that are hidden behind the scenes because they're there. They're always there. We just have to know how to look for them. Not just for the children. You know, uh, everybody responds to a disaster or crisis in a different way. Some people have a greater or more easy bounce back than others. And for those who tend to be traumatized or triggered when bad things happen, one of the ways we can help refocus our attention and build up that emotional muscle of resiliency is to begin to look for the silver lining, to begin to look for where those helpers are residing and how uh, the human spirit is strong, is generous, and is able to come back from the brink of disaster. Excellent. That's Yes, that's right, Lisa. And and again, we see it every single time, and people tend to forget that because, again, we see the coverage when the disaster first hits. But then afterwards, you know, new news happens, and then we tend to forget after a while um, and lose touch with what that disaster caused and what's happening with rebuilding. But I can tell you, and as we see, every single time a disaster hits, wherever it is in the globe, we rebuild. That community ends up rebuilding. New Orleans is still in the middle of rebuilding. New York City and areas that were affected by Sandy are still rebuilding. All of the areas that we've seen coverage on disasters across the globe, they continue to rebuild, and they will. Things don't just stop and shut down. Communities continue on, and we all do. As humans, we are resilient, and I think that's a really positive message that people need to remind themselves of. We are a great race. We, re- we, we are a great um, asset to each other. Whenever there is an emergency, we come together. We really do. And I think people need to be reminded of how strong we really are as humans and that humanity really does still exist, even though you might not see it every time you turn on the news. For every negative story that you see, there are thousands behind the scenes that you don't see that are positive. I do a lot of work with people who are in crisis. I work a lot with veterans. I work a lot with folks who have been through quite a bit of trauma. And one of the examples that I uh, share frequently is the state of our world on September 12th. Not September 11th, but September 12th. That if you look at the cooperation, if you look at the empathy, compassion, the will to roll up one's sleeves and dive in, whether you were um, on site in New York City or any of the other locations where the disaster struck, or you were just in your hometown dealing with children, loved ones in the community who, was, who were tra- also traumatized by the events that happened. That's right. And a great example in the book that I talk about is Evan and Jeff Parnes' story. 
from New York City who, because of the thoughts of a five-year-old child, and this is also an example of how you, you can be any age to be a hero and come up with something that turns into something incredible. Um, because of the words and the thoughts of a five-year-old child um, who was directly affected by 9-11, um, came to came to fruition this thing called the New York Says Thank You Foundation, which is exactly what you talked about, which is showing the humanity of all of us and specifically of Americans from 912 onwards and how we continue to not only rebuild um, but also help other communities, New York giving back to all those other communities who gave to them their support and their love mm. um, after those 9-11 terror attacks. But New York now giving back to communities across the world to say thank you for the support and love that they received um, after that and moving on and showing people that it's about rebuilding and that that's what we do, um, not only as a nation but across the world. We help each other rebuild. We move on. Um, and, again, we give back to those other communities that have faced tragedy as well. So New York Says Thank You Foundation continues to give back every year um, after September 12th, they keep going back to rebuild other communities. Um, and it's just a great show. And these people, it's, it's, I, I want to mention as well, the people who are giving back and rebuilding those other communities are first responders who themselves were directly affected and impacted by those um, terror events um, on 9-11. So it also gives them a chance to be able to give back, um, and it gives them an, an ability to be able to um, survive and, and, again, to show that humanity still exists, that they can rebuild their lives and rebuild those of others who've gone through similar things. Well, I, I think it's fair to say that one can perceive the world as either a very hospitable place or a very dangerous and scary place, and both are right. That's right. And again, yes, we will unfortunately continue to see disasters. We cannot prevent all of them from happening. We can get better at how we respond and how we rebuild after, and I think we're continuing to do that. But again, as long as we continue to stay focused on the positive and remember that there are all those positive stories, and again, the thought that anybody, and if you, when you read these stories in the book, you'll see that these are just normal people like you and I um, who have just taken an idea and ran with it, and then made a difference in so many people's lives that they could never have imagined um, possible. But again, just normal people doing the right thing and having an idea and doing something about it. And then we are almost out of time, Suzanne, but I did it. want to talk about a, a, an atypical hero. And this was uh, a photographer from Tokyo. That's just right. briefly tell us a little bit about that story and the 2011 um, Japanese tsunami and earthquake. Right. So after the earthquake and tsunami, there was a professional Tokyo photographer who had witnessed that and was wondering what he could do to give back. He came up with a brilliant idea, which was knowing that over 2,000 families had lost everything. Um, but what they had lost, which was of most value to them, which they could never get back, was their family photos. He thought he would give back to them something that would represent a new beginning to them. So he gathered up a bunch of volunteer photographers, makeup artists, set designers to go to where they were sheltered to those areas and set up a makeshift photo studio and give back to them professional family portraits 
which not only would now give them new portraits that they could build their new lives with, but again was a sign to them of their resilience and a sign of their new beginning. And it was that is incredible. That is in that is magical. What yes. a gift. What an incredible gift. And he implicated so many different people within the community to help with that whole project that it just raised awareness not only within the communities involved but across the globe because now he's taking those portraits across the globe um, to let, to, so that people don't forget the people that were directly involved. And they don't forget that these people are continuing on with their lives and have rebuilt. And each one of these photos, I believe, shows the human resilience um, that we each and every one of us have within each other. Um, so I was so fortunate to be able to share some of Nobuyuki's wonderful portraits in the book as well. Beautiful. The book is Disaster Heroes. My guest has been Suzanne Bernier. To learn more, please visit SuzanneBernier.com, on Facebook, Disaster Heroes, and on Twitter, that handle is at SB Crisis or at Disaster Heroes. Here come the tunes. Thank you to my guest. We'll be right back. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Lisa Cypress Kamen has made her first ebook, Got Happiness Now? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.harvestinghappinesstalkradio.com. Saturday afternoons on 97.5. Joy riding the coast with a global vibe, pleasing your ears and inspiring your mind. Joy riding the coast with me, Lisa Cypress Cayman. Saturdays, 2 to 5, on 97.5. KBU and RadioMalibu.net. Like what you hear on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio? Subscribe to us on iTunes and get your weekly dose of joy downloaded free and easily to your computer or portable device. That's Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio on iTunes. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. We are talking about everyday heroes amongst us as well as disaster relief. And when disaster strikes, what we all need is support. And support is something that is valuable. We often don't oftentimes don't know how to reach out to get what we need when we are in um, a disaster area. But there is one organization that we have come across that is really doing incredible work, and that is Shelterbox USA, which provides humanitarian relief in the form of equipment and materials that bring shelter, warmth, and dignity 
to people affected by natural and other disasters worldwide. And with me this morning is Alan Monroe. He is the Interim Executive Director of Shelterbox USA, which is based in Florida, and they are providing leadership to the U.S. affiliate of the rapidly growing International Disaster Relief Organization. Good morning, Alan. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. It is a pleasure. I really take great joy and pride in sharing organizations such as yours with our community. And what you do is quite fantastic. I've done some research and the shelter box is literally that. It is a box that will be deployed to a disaster relief site and it contains the necessary items to provide temporary shelter and help others begin to rebuild their lives. Tell us a little bit about how Shelterbox was founded and how you came to be involved with the organization. Sure. It started with a real simple concept. You know, what, what would you need for your family in the event that you'd lost everything after a disaster or humanitarian conflict? And then it built upon it from there. Um, we got started in the year 2000. And since then, we've responded with uh, big green boxes to more than 95 countries and 250 plus disasters, uh, spanning from disasters that folks may not hear about on the news, uh, such as flooding in Uganda or, uh, you know, typhoons, uh, you know, in the Philippines that aren't majorly uh, publicized, or even some of the large ones, the Haiti earthquake, Hurricane Katrina, uh, the Indian Ocean tsunami, the Nepalese earthquake just a few months ago, and also the, the much larger Philippine typhoon back in 2013. And what we provide is a solution that is tailored for, for each particular environment that we respond to. Uh, so a tropical environment may get a different configuration of that shelter box than, say, a cold-weather climate. And the types of aid, very simple, pots and pans, mosquito nets, uh, something to keep the children warm uh, and, and something for the kids to play with, uh, protection from the elements and disease, uh, and water purification, uh, all things that are essential to get a family back on their feet again after they've lost everything. And these, when, you, when you say water purification, I think this is really important because this is oftentimes one of the more critical uh, factors that need to be addressed in some of these areas. Absolutely. Uh, you know, someone can live uh, three days you know, with wa without water, three weeks without food. Uh, and, and the most important critical element that we provide is the shelter because without uh, protection from the elements, uh, someone that is sick, that's wounded, that's elderly, perhaps a child, can succumb to the elements. And the second most important thing is, is what you've mentioned, is, is that water purification uh, component, because uh, infrastructure is seriously damaged after a disaster, water tables may be contaminated, uh, and, and purifying water after disaster is really the only way to keep your family safe. And the particular uh, piece of equipment that we provide keeps the family safe for more than a year, uh, which is it's, it's a pretty easy-to-use system. And uh, we've had feedback from our beneficiaries that it's, it's one of the most important pieces of equipment. And how did you come to be involved with Shelterbox USA? Well, I got started as a volunteer back in the year 2007. And one of the things that makes Shelterbox unique is we have what's called a Shelterbox response team. And these are trained volunteers that go out and deliver the aid to the families most affected. Uh, it's, it's an element that ensures that the aid gets to where it needs to go, but also that, uh, you know, we're, we're finding the most needy in, in those communities. And that's what initially attracted me to the organization. And since then, I've responded to more than 10 disasters worldwide, both here in the United States and 
you know, in faraway places such as Amazon and Peru. It's been an absolutely phenomenal experience. Uh, a few years later, I ended up uh, joining staff, and it's been an absolute dream job ever since. I can imagine, you know, getting to do what you love, helping others. Um, it's my understanding that you were an Eagle Scout, and that that knowledge has come in quite handy. It has. You know, when, when you're thrust into a situation where the infrastructure is damaged, uh, there are problems that you face that you've never faced in your life. And every corner that you turn, there's a, a, a big no in your face. You have to overcome the challenge in any way that you can. And there's no rule book for what we do in the field. You can't turn to page 42 for an earthquake in Haiti and 24 for an earthquake in Nepal. They're, they're, each one is completely different. And that's why we need a very small team of dedicated uh, and sharp individuals to get on the ground, assess what's needed, find a way to get the equipment through customs as quickly as possible, and ultimately work with the community uh, itself uh, to determine the type of response that's most appropriate for that, that environment. You, your volunteer network consists of, I, I, I believe you mentioned, um, about 400 volunteers throughout the United States, and that's not to mention or include those based around the world because you have a very large affiliate network since Shelterbox was founded in the United Kingdom. That's right. In the United States, we have about 400 volunteer speakers that go out and speak in their community to community groups, youth groups, church groups, uh, of which we have about 50 uh, response team members in the United States that stop at a moment's notice, get on an airplane, and, and go and assist families made homeless by disaster. Worldwide, we've got about 18 affiliates and about 250 uh, volunteer response team members. Uh, so at any point in time, we can all you know, end up working together with folks you may or may not have met before in the field but have the same training and same background that you have to get the job done. And I'm assuming that you work with um, local governments as well as NGOs when you are boots on the ground? That's exactly right. In a major disaster such as an Nepalese earthquake, there are many uh, NGOs or non-governmental organizations that come to assist those made homeless. And we tend to partner in what's called a cluster system where all the groups come together and coordinate their response to ensure that we try to help as many families as possible without duplicating. Uh, in some of the smaller disasters, oftentimes we're the only organization that's operating. It kind of brings me back to Peru uh, when the Amazon had flooded a few years back. In that case, we were the only NGO operating on the ground, and we ended up partnering with the local government to determine who was the most needy to uh, help out with transportation and logistics, and ultimately to find land that we could use for a long period of time that allowed the families to rebuild their lives. And when you're talking about land that you can use, what you're really talking about is sending, setting up a temporary camp, a temporary village or community where um, the beneficiaries can live for a period of time until they can either go home or home can be rebuilt. That's exactly right. We prefer to have a shelter-in-place strategy to put the families back on their home site where they had lived before, which makes it a lot easier for them to you know, begin that rebuilding process. There are times, however, when you need to find a plot of land and, and create a camp. And with it, there comes all kinds of things that uh, response members like myself have to put into place. Where, where is the water and sanitation going to go? What about the latrines? What about the security of the families that we're going to place there? For how long can they stay on this land? Because chances are they don't own the land. Uh, there are a whole host of questions that we need to solve 
uh, in order to get the job done. So it's not just going into the country and setting up tents. It's really uh, so much more. In the case of the smaller disasters, like the one you've just mentioned in the Amazon, how do you get the word? How is the flare, uh, or the call for help sent out to you? And and then how do you respond? You mentioned a little bit about the deployment, people getting on a plane at a moment's notice, but how do you know where to go? That's a complex answer because it's different for every disaster. We, we uh, research, uh, we get uh, alerts on our phones whenever a disaster occurs. We research the media, which uh, you know gets the first round of information. We call our maybe former contacts on the ground. In the case of that uh, flooding in the Amazon, we actually got on the ground with an assessment team to determine if we were needed, and we ended up working in a very small community uh, that had agreed to move their village away from the flood region to a much safer location, and uh, we ended up partnering with them to find the plot of land, to work with them to clear it, to ensure that there were latrines. And I remember as we set up that tent community, and we partnered with the community itself to actually build the tents. We only have four team members, and if you're setting up 50 tents, that takes quite a bit of time, so we need to work with the community to, to volunteer. We had set up uh, tents for the entire community, and they all kind of, uh, we were showing them how to use the water purification and, and the pots and pans and mosquito nets and, and what have you. And they erupted in applause, and one by one, they came up and kissed us on our cheek, shook our hands, gave us a hug. And uh, I remember the community leader pulled me aside and said, you know, I just want you to understand that we couldn't have made this possible without an organization such as Shelterbox. And it really hit me that he wasn't thanking me. He was really thanking those folks that make our work possible, our donors, contributors, our volunteers. And, and I want to add that Shelterbox is, it literally is a kit. And these kits are made possible by donations. Um, organizations can fundraise to uh, provide the resources for a kit. They typically uh, cost about $1,000 to put together. And they include, like Alan said, the basics to begin to rebuild life once again. We are going to go to a break. And when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation about disaster heroes and creating uh, disaster relief in areas that have undergone um, crises. To learn more about Shelterbox, please visit shelterboxusa.org. And you can donate resources there. You can become involved, uh, volunteer on Facebook. That page is Shelterbox USA. And the Twitter handle is at Shelterbox. Once again, that's Shelterbox USA. And here come those tunes. We'll be right back to continue the conversation with its executive director, Alan Monroe. like Lisa's take on happiness, well-being, and human flourishing? Join us this spring as Harvesting Happiness launches online classroom programming where Lisa Cypress-Kamen will offer her workshop series across the globe and from the comfort of wherever you are. Visit HarvestingHappiness.com for more details. Be a part of the grateful good. Grateful Nation brings together patients, families, friends, and staff of Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center to support the quality care and groundbreaking research at the medical center. 
Through new and traditional media, members of Grateful Nation share experiences, thank our caregivers and researchers, participate in sweepstakes, and gather to sponsor and host events and much more. Being grateful inspires others to be grateful as well. Isn't it time we jumpstart some perpetual gratitude? Visit Grateful Nation online to find out more at www.gratefulnation.org. Have a grateful day. I feel good. I knew that I wouldn't. I feel good. I knew that I wouldn't. So good. So good. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this podcast. Why? Because sharing is caring, and we are talking all about caring. People to people, people helping people through natural disasters. Um, and really, we call these our disaster heroes. And today's show is focusing on just that. And with me now is Alan Monroe. He is the interim executive director of Shelterbox USA, which provides these incredible uh, boxes of humanitarian relief in the form of equipment and materials that bring shelter, warmth, and dignity to those affected by natural and other disasters worldwide. So, Alan, prior to the break, we were talking about how Shelterbox is deployed in these smaller areas, such as the, the, the Amazon. But what about the larger disasters, like in Chile, uh, Syria, work that you've been doing in Jordan, Iraq, Turkey? Um, these are these are big refugee crises in some of these places and require a lot of uh, deployment tactics. One of the things our organization does to ensure that we can move as quickly as possible after disasters, we pre-position aid in strategic locations where we believe um, and, and experience has shown that, unfortunately, our aid is going to be needed in the future. That ring of fire in Southeast Asia and uh, parts in Africa and and, um, and South America as well. So we have aid that's prepositions uh, that when a major disaster happens, we get it on an air, airplane and, and get it to the most affected areas as quickly as possible. And oftentimes, uh, you know, shelter is one of the most critical needs after a major disaster, using the, the case in point of the Nepalese earthquake. Uh, shelter was one of the, the most uh, called for uh, needs that the Nepalese government and the people asked for. And thankfully, we had some aid that was already pre-positioned in Nepal that allowed us for a very quick response, enabling us to help uh, more than 20,000 people over the, the next coming months after that, that horrible earthquake. Uh, so the speed of which we respond is really made uh, possible because we have that, uh, that infrastructure in place. But major disasters, each one is completely different. So the way in which we respond once we get into the country, it varies. Uh, the Syrian refugee crisis itself is, is incredibly complex due to the security concerns that our volunteers and our partners face every day when they're in the field. Uh, we are able to get aid directly into Syria to help the refugees or the internally displaced peoples that are, are seeking refuge inside the country. But so much of our assistance is going to uh, regions in Kurdistan and Iraq and Lebanon and Jordan because there are 9 million people that are displaced as a result of this disaster, and that's larger than the typhoon in the Philippines, the Nepalese earthquake, and the Haiti earthquake combined. It's, it's a monumental issue that isn't getting a lot of media attention right now. Nevertheless, we're responding. So if it's a small disaster or a large one, shelter boxes is going to be there. 
Well, I, I think the statistic that you just quoted is astounding, that there are 9 million people displaced in the Middle Eastern region due to the conflicts of war, and Shelterbox is able to get in there and get aid and relief directly to these people. And this is really, I think, emblematic of Shelterbox's mission. I mean, it's really people to people. It's it's quite grassroots-like. You know, you're not... You're not um, funneling your money through a government and hoping or, or through uh, 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 some of the larger charities and hoping your donations get there. Your donations are getting there. They're going right to the people. And I think that's one of the things that's most attractive about Shelterbox is because it is such uh, a tangible way to assist. You know, look, when, whenever a major disaster happens, I just I, I think back to the Haiti earthquake and, it, and it, I was watching the news right after it hit and there was a cloud of debris in the air as the earthquake had shattered so many concrete buildings, and literally the cloud was concrete in the air. And I, I, like so many others, sat on my seat saying, we've got to do something. What can we do? And thankfully, I'm a part of Shelterbox, so I had that opportunity. So many other folks across the nation said, you know, we can partner with Shelterbox because we can track our donation to where it ultimately goes. And every donation of any amount uh, that goes to our Shelterbox fund, you get a box number. That, and when that box is delivered, you get to know exactly where your dollars assisted. So there isn't any pass-throughs or, or you know, governments that are receiving the assistance. It goes directly to the people. And I think that's, like you say, one of the most attractive things about our organization. Indeed. And I want to add that Shelterbox is an award-winning charity, that you are a, a gold Guide Star participant, that you're committed to transparency, financial and operational efficiency, that your values include accountability, immediacy, integrity, dignity, and collaboration, which clearly you've, you've, you've shown it is going on. There's one thing I also want to mention about um, providing aid to war-torn war areas, and that is the moral injury of the people, that you're not just dealing with a natural disaster such as an earthquake or a flood. You're dealing with people who have been displaced physically and emotionally by war. It's war is heartbreaking, and the one thing that I'd like to say uh, to that effect is uh, two thirds of those that are displaced, those nine million people as a result of Syria, it, they're children. And one of the things that we do that we don't publicize as much is we provide what's called a school box. Uh, it's it's basically everything a school needs to have school sessions again, uh, including blackboard paint and chalk and children's activity packs. And we've delivered uh, a large amount of them, hundreds, uh, to areas in these, in these refugee camps to allow kids to get back to a normal life. And what we do, uh, not just, you know, helping kids get back to normal life and, and put a smile on their face again, but just the simple tent itself is really powerful. It's, it's a way of which families can get their family unit together and, and close the door to the world and begin that rebuilding and, uh, process. And sometimes that rebuilding process isn't physically rebuilding a home, and some, sometimes it's getting back to a sense of normalcy uh, with your family. And I was just going to add that, that the, the sense of structure and routine to even create these school settings for the children so they have some place to go during the day, some uh, escape from war because they're being focused on at least uh, maintaining or learning basic studies. Yeah, there's an entire generation of young people in this region that are not getting an education, and the, the long-lasting effects uh, you know, are yet to be seen. 
And organizations like Shelterbox, we're doing our part to help get that education component back up and running again through providing the essential resources to allow it. Well, this is incredible work and one that I personally have a, a heartfelt affinity for. I do a lot of work with uh, war trauma with veterans, and I can see how the children are traumatized by the parents' experience, but when the children themselves are going through the spoils of war and displacement, how there needs to be some grounding in order to begin to heal and not perpetuate the trauma in a second-hand or third-hand way to, for the generations to come. And that is the challenge in these areas, I believe. It is. And, and that's, you know, we, we, can't, we can't solve all the issues. But, the, you know, the one that we certainly can um, make an impact for is, is providing families that sense of home again, even when they can't go back home at, at that particular time, um, a sense of community uh, when, when there are tent communities or tent camps, so to speak, and also helping the, the children to have that sense of normalcy again, to, you know, move, move away from the fact that their lives have been completely turned uh, around and, and begin that, that rebuilding process of going back to school again. It can be just as simple as that. And this leads me to the next obvious uh, question, and that is how we can help, how uh, communities in America can help get the word out and raise funds. And like we said earlier in the show, that uh, a full shelter box is approximately $1,000, and it's customized based on the need of the, of the area where it's going. But this is a wonderful opportunity for schools, colleges, universities, clubs. Um, I know that you guys are connected to the Rotary Club to really personalize its fundraising efforts to help um, support you in deploying these boxes out into the field. There's so many ways to get involved with the organization. I'm glad you bring that up because our volunteer network and our supporter network is its really inspiring to watch them uh, do what they do. You know, I, I've seen, I've seen uh, fundraisers to such a large scale where they're, uh, you know, big dinners with uh, silent auctions and very small ones. You know, it, it reminds me of a, a lemonade stand. Uh, we've got a picture of this young girl who sold lemonade on the side of a road and actually raised enough for a full box. Just people coming through the community wanting to uh, both support her, but also the organization that she supported uh, after the, the Japanese earthquake and tsunami in 2011. Uh, there are so many different ways to be involved. It could be as simple as donating your birthday. And instead of getting gifts for your birthday, asking for donations that can go to our organization. Or you can even become a, a volunteer speaker for the organization and speak to community groups and youth groups. Um, many meaningful ways to be involved. Of course, if you're interested, folks can also uh, go out to the field uh, and, and become a response team member. It's, it's a highly selective process uh, that there are short windows where folks can, can get involved. Um, but if folks are interested, I would urge them to check out our website on shelterboxusa.org forward slash be involved. Thank you. Thank you for being with us, Alan Monroe, the Interim Executive Director of Shelterbox USA. To learn more, you can go to shelterboxusa.org, as he said, or also on Facebook, Shelterbox USA, and on Twitter, that handle is at Shelterbox. Here are a few thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. Happiness simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, 
place and meaning. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guest today, Susan Bernier, author of Disaster Heroes and Alan Monroe of Shelterbox, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. And thanks to our producers who make us shine each and every week. We appreciate you. Go out and make it a good one. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Join us every Wednesday morning live at 10 to 11 Central Time here on TogiNet Radio. Then harvest your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with free downloadable podcasts available at iTunes. To learn more about Lisa's filmography, felicitation, and philanthropy, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Each week, Harvesting Happiness presents engaging trendsetters, exploring our world through science, art, medicine, media, music, philosophy, politics, and the human heart, whose perspectives on life are sure to inspire, provoke, and engage. Lisa's diverse guests are a proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who have devoted their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Like Lisa says, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following us on Twitter at hashtag Harvesting Happiness. Then join us again next week at this same time on the TogiNet Radio Network.